You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Well, today we kick off a new series called Messy Grace on 1 Corinthians. Um, This is probably one of the more controversial books in the entire uh, New Testament. It is a it is a book that is has a lot of dysfunctional people in it, and it covers a lot of ground. It is shocking in many ways, and it speaks amazingly to current issues that are still happening today, 2,000 years later. What you might find shocking as we go through it is how many of the principles are ignored by churches today. And so we're going to jump right in. Welcome to Corinth. Here we go, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, and then we're going to start kind of diving into who these people are. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now he says right off the top, he says, I am sent by Jesus. I am sent by God. I'm not coming to you in man's authority. I'm coming to you with God's authority. I'm writing this as someone who's speaking with the authority of Jesus. So whenever he says, Paul, an apostle, he's saying, I have the authority given to me by Jesus, by God himself, to write this letter and instruct you in areas. So this is not to be taken lightly. So he says, and our brother, uh, which means, hey, and this guy who's helping me, some would say that he was the scribe as, as Paul is dictating it. He might be scribing it, but this is the person who's with him, helping to write and put this letter together. He says, to the church of God in Corinth. Now, it says the church of God. It doesn't just say the church in Corinth because the church is God's. Our church is the Lord's. This church belongs to God. That church belongs to God. You're going to find an incredibly messed up church, but they belonged to God. All right, the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified, that's a verb, it means the practice of being set apart in Christ Jesus to be his holy people. That's a noun, that's your position in Christ Jesus to be set apart. Followers of Jesus, we are called to be different. That's what the word sanctified and holy means, to be different, to be set apart. It's the theme throughout the entire letter, all right? Be different. He says, together with all those everywhere, who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means this is dealing with issues that are not just Corinth issues, but these are for churches everywhere. All right? So this was a letter that was written that is to be applied to all the churches everywhere. That's us included. All right? Their Lord and ours. It's a big family. I love this. This is we are the family of God together. We are all followers of Jesus Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a greeting. That's like, you know, just a typical opening greeting with some little nuggets of reason of why he said a certain thing. Now, let's talk a little bit about who these people are in this place called Corinth. Now, take a look at this map. Uh, The Apostle Paul is currently, uh, based on Acts, when he wrote this letter, Serving in Ephesus. He loved Ephesus. He was was the pastor, the founding pastor in Ephesus, and he lived there for nearly two and a half, three years. The only other place he lived uh, uh, long, Ephesus was the longest, the only other place he lived almost as long was Corinth, and he lived in Corinth a year and a half, 
All right, so he's in Ephesus. He keeps getting this information about Corinth, so he's writing a letter to them. Now, go ahead and play that video. As I talk to you about Corinth, I want you to kind of watch this kind of flyover, this recreation of this city. Now, Corinth was known as the original sin city. I mean, you might even say what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. It is a cosmopolitan seaport city. People uh, would come there, they would party, they would celebrate, they would gamble, they would uh, uh, go to shows, they would go to the games, and then they would go home. It was, a, it was considered a destination city in the ancient world. It was a place where people went and, for vacation and to get away. It was a place where uh, uh, people who were in the military would go to party. It was a place where those that were mariners would go and, and hang out and change uh, and, and, and wait. It was also a very sexually charged city. In fact, I went through this book 10 years ago, and when I did, I called it Christians Gone Wild, because it really is a picture of what's happening in Corinth. Some of the alternate uh, titles could have been uh, Cornifornication, <laughs> kind of like the spinoff of Californication. Um, here's some actual titles uh, of sermons on this, uh, Jesus in a Jacked Up Church, Controversies that Almost Killed a Church, and I came across one California church that called this their series First Californians. No intention to be offended to Californians, but it had this reputation. Um, in Corinth, they literally worshiped the God of sex. Now, in this video, you're going to see up on the, the hill, see that up in the background? That's the Chronopolis, and, and that is a temple up at the top of the hill to the goddess Aphrodite, and also known as Venus, if, if you're in Latin language. So the goddess Aphrodite was the, was the mascot. And, and in that temple, at one time, they had up to a 1,000 prostitutes working daily in that temple, men and women prostitutes. And people would climb that mountain. They would walk up that trail. It would take an hour, hour and a half to get up there, and they would go often daily. If they went to Corinth, they went to the temple of Aphrodite there. There's actually three temples to Aphrodite in town, two in the ground and one in the Chronopolis. And they would go up there and they would have sex with these prostitutes that were temple servants. And, and they believed that when they did that, that the goddess Aphrodite or Venus would give them fertile land. Uh, would bless their crops and, and bless their home and give them a lot of children and give them a fertile livestock and multiply their wealth. In fact, there's a phrase in the ancient world translated into English called Corinthizing which means that you're living wild. In fact, if you were called in the ancient world a Corinthian girl, it meant that you were a harlot. And in all the ancient plays, whenever Corinth, people from Corinth were, were in the play, you know, a character was in the play, they were usually either the, uh, they were usually either an immoral person or a drunk in the story. So Corinth had a reputation for being a wild and crazy town. Well, five years before this letter, Paul was sent by God to Corinth and started witnessing and led people to Christ in this crazy, messed-up town. And five years earlier, this letter, he planted a church. They started meeting in houses. Eventually, they multiplied to multiple houses. The story is in Acts chapter 18, if you want to read it for yourself. And he pastored and stayed with them for a year and a half. 
After he left, there was a great preacher, a great pastor called Apollos that came in after him. They had a great foundation. They had a great pastor. But they struggled to get it together. They lived in a messed up city, and they ended up having a messed up faith as well. The the Corinthian church was made up of new and immature believers. They had a lot, did a lot, knew a lot, but they lacked discipline. All right, and I don't know about you, but I'm already just just by that intro thing, man. This sounds just like most metropolitan Christian communities today. So they send a letter. Some people, you know, who love Jesus are watching what's happening in their churches, and so they send a letter to Paul, and they're like, "Paul, man, things are going crazy here." So he begins to write letters from Ephesus to Corinth. Now he wrote them four times. We only have two of them. The first one is mentioned in the letter that we're going to read, uh, which we call 1 Corinthians. It's actually the, the second one. The first one is missing. And some would say it's because he just really cut loose and maybe they didn't uh, want to share it with anybody. And then apparently he wrote a third letter, which we don't have. And he actually, in the fourth letter that he wrote, we call 2 Corinthians. In the fourth letter, he apologizes for the way he says things, but not for what he says. So apparently the church got his third letter and says, no, we're not sharing this with anybody. It never circulated. It's like the, it, never, it never got out. So what we have, First and Second Corinthians, is actually second and fourth letters that he wrote to them. So he responded. And now this letter that he writes is all over the map. You can see this is Corinth today. It was, has a massive, uh, uh, there's, there's the Chronopolis city right there and the ruins of the, the Temple Aphrodite are still on top of it. It's, a, it's an amazing place. In fact, Sean Denny just went there a couple of weeks ago and if you're following on, on Facebook, he posted some pictures that he took while he was there. Um, this letter is all over the map. Think about it. These are some of the things that are addressed in this letter that we're about to tackle. Of course, there's arguing among Christians. There's Christians suing each other. There's rampant immorality. People are getting drunk at church potluck dinners. That's the truth. It's happening in Corinth. There's divisiveness. They're actually separating the church based upon their income level. It is incredibly um, divisive. Um, There's arrogance. There's misuse of spiritual gifts. Uh, They began to doubt the resurrection and question the very words of Jesus. They began to ignore sin. There was an issue of incest happening in the church. Uh, They were still going to the idol temples in Corinth. They were progressive, and they were proud of it. They were all over the place that this was one messed up church. And this is what 1st and 2nd Corinthians are about. But what we find as he addresses these issues is grace. Paul approaches each issue with patience and care. In fact, after he does his greeting, this is what he says in 1st Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, I am shocked and disgusted by what I am hearing all about you. No, he doesn't say that at all. This is, he says this, in spite of all that, in spite of the fact that God has given you grace, in spite of all this that I'm hearing about, you're still people of grace. He says this, I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Here's kind of a little footnote. In each letter, he does, he thanks them for something he's proud of them about. He doesn't thank them about anything. He says, I thank God 
that he still loves you. <laughs> he says, you know, I can thank this church for being generous, this church for loving Jesus, this church for looking out for the poor. Man, I'm so thankful when I think of you that God still loves you. <laughs> you know, I love it. It's so much because his grace is given to you. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He also will keep you to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you read that, you'd have no idea that they're going through all that craziness that I just described. That doesn't sound like a messed up church. It doesn't sound like what I just described. But in this messed up church, in a messed up city, God was still blessing them. How was he blessing them? With grace. He was still blessing them with his faithfulness to them. Now, what makes grace so amazing? Because this is the theme through the whole thing. I really, many of you guys have heard a little bit of this before. Uh, but this is why grace is so amazing. Justice, which God is a God of justice, justice is paying for what you did and serving time for it. You know, justice is getting what you deserve and paying what you took or doing the time for a crime that you committed. That's justice. But this is also what God gives. He gives grace. And he gives mercy. Grace is defined as unmerited favor. And mercy is defined as unmerited forgiveness. See how they work together? While grace is getting what you don't deserve, mercy is not getting what we deserve. You see, we forget sometimes that grace not only forgives us when we sin, but grace also restores us when we do and empowers us so that we don't. See, grace is the, the common solidifying issue that God gives. He's giving us what you don't deserve. We look at this Corinth church and we see ourselves as we read this letter. And what they got, they didn't deserve. You don't deserve, with all your stupidity, all the stuff that we do in our messed up lives, we don't deserve what God gives us. Grace. Grace. In fact, when we're weak and when we're tired and when we fail, that's when God is his best. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, my grace, he says, I'm failing, I'm struggling, and, and I'm weak. And, he, and God spoke to Paul, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I want to talk about that mercy for just a second. I thank God that he's not fair. Well, God's not fair. You know, this person gets that, this person gets that. You know, it doesn't seem like God's, God's not fair. Well, thank God he's not. Because you know what fair is? Fair is getting what you deserve. And what I deserve and what you deserve is eternity apart from God. We deserve eternal judgment. That's what we deserve. Our sin puts us in a position of judgment and that's justice. But God, in his grace and mercy, extends to us something that we don't deserve and gives us something that is greater, and that is grace and mercy. See, he's not fair. What I deserve is hell, but he doesn't give it to me through his mercy and through his grace. So how does grace and faith work? 
Well, they work together. Like, how does, how does grace, mercy, and works work? So I'm like, well, how much of our, you know, faith without works is dead? And, you know, are we saved by our works? All right, God gives us his grace. Do we have a part to play in it? You know, what do we have to do? And, you know, is it sloppy? Is it easy believing some grace? Which is it? Well, uh, there's a, a preacher named Larry Osborne. He has this quote, and I think it's really good. He says, God saves us and blesses us in ways we could never earn or deserve. Now live like it is only God who saves you and blesses you, all right? So this is, this is what it means to walk in grace, mercy, and works. True life change results in a life change. The proof that God has moved in your life is that there's movement in your life. Here's how I like to describe it. Say you've ever gone to, uh, these are beautiful apples. Say you've ever gone to, you know, an apple farm, and, uh, and you're like, man, you had one of these red delicious, and you're like, like apples here? I like apples. So you, uh, you go to the gift shop there, that apple farm, and, and you, just, you buy, uh, you know, some seeds, and you have no knowledge, you know, you're going to find you really have no knowledge after this illustration, is uh, uh, you buy what you think are apple seeds, and so you go home, and you plant them, and you begin to, to experience this, this tree growing, and then all of a sudden, what starts to come off the tree are these things, avocados. Now, you're like, wait a minute, let me check my receipt, <laughs> you know. Well, the receipt says it's apple tree, so it must be a different kind of apple. Like, these are green apples and mushy apples. And, and so you, you think, well, regardless of what I'm seeing in the fruit department, the receipt says I bought an apple tree. Now listen, I want you to hear this out. This is what grace and works operates like. When you plant it and it bears different fruit, it doesn't bear fruit based on what you think it should bear and what you paid for or hoped for, but by what is inside. No matter the receipt that you have, no matter what you've been told, only what's inside can produce that fruit. So here's the deal. If you have grace inside of you, it doesn't matter how much you go to church. It doesn't matter what you think about your life or what you believe or what the receipt says or what you think you paid for. It doesn't matter if the seed inside of grace is not grace. It doesn't matter. You're not growing an apple tree. All right? Grace produces grace. This is a theme that we're going to find through the whole thing. Grace produces grace. It doesn't matter what the receipt says. Some of you are like, well, you know, my, my certificate says I was baptized at seven, and that's when I became a Christian. But yet your fruit does not bear witness to that grace. Well, I said a prayer, and I, and you know, and I, and I repeated what the, what the guy up there said, and I prayed, or I read that track, and I said the prayer at the end. But What's inside is not bearing the fruit. So it doesn't matter what you prayed, what you said, what you signed, what you walked, how wet you got. If the fruit is not bearing the seed of the grace that should be inside of you, it's not, it's not working. It's not, it's not true. So don't be confused by the apples and avocados. He starts off by saying, I am so excited, Corinth Church. You have God's grace. It's in you. I know it's in you. A grace that had saved them, that had set them apart. And then he says, and a grace that will finish what God started. 
Paul is the expert of what I like to call the love sandwich. If you guys, if you've ever worked with me in leadership, you know I'm, you're familiar with the love sandwich. The love sandwich is when you have an issue to address, you give them love, you give them the meat of the discipline, and then you give them some love again. You, you sandwich the discipline or the a correction or the a confrontation with love, right? Love, man, you're doing great. You're doing awesome. I love you. I'm proud of you. Here's something I want you to work on. I challenge you. Here's something I really want to, uh, you know, lift you up with. And, and then, but I love you. I encourage you. I challenge you. I'm proud of you. And like you're walking away feeling like, like you're flying, but you didn't know you just got beat, right? It's like that's the love sandwich. Paul was the expert at the love sandwich. Man, what a great attitude, man. Different some, from, from how so many other Christians treat each other, right? When, when we come across struggling Christians or, or people who, who are kind of working out that whole fruit and grace seed thing and they're struggling to walk in line with the grace that they have inside of them, a lot of times Christians, man, they just, psh, 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 you know, we're, we're, we're sometimes harsh and rude and mean and not very uh, patient and grace-filled, but I like how Paul does he says, man, I love you guys. You guys are great. He loves on them, and then he lovingly lays into them. All right? So love sandwich at work here. The first issue he says in this messed up church is verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It says, they were a church divided. He loves on them, and he says, but I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united, that's knit together like a fishing net, that you're like strung together in mind and in thought. So what makes unity so important? This is the very first, 25% of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians deals with unity, deals with unity and division, all right? So that's a lot of emphasis, and so we're going to talk a little bit about that in, in this week and in some of the weeks to come and, and how diversity works in our church. But let's take a second to see why unity is so important. Well, Jesus the pastor says this. Jesus, he said that he commanded us to be in unity. And because Jesus commanded it, we must obey. You see, unity is for you. It's for your sake. He commanded it for you to be in unity, to do whatever it takes. He said in John 13, 34, he says, I command you to love one another. You must seek unity with each other, all right? It's for your sake. And then second, Jesus prayed it for us, so we must prioritize it. That means unity is for our sake. Unity is not only for your sake, but it is for our sake. In John 17, uh, 20 to 23, Jesus, he said, I prayed for the, the body. He says, I pray that you, disciples, are one like my Father and I are one. In Ephesians 4, 3, Paul said, make every effort to keep the unity for our sake. So it's for your sake. It's for our sake. And then this is the third one. Unity is for their sake. Jesus says our impact in the world is affected by our unity with each other. Non-Christians can and will and are allowed to judge us by our unity. It's for them. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, They, the world, will know you are my disciples by your love for each other, by your unity, by the way that you get along. See, I think a big reason that we're seeing such a decline 
and Christian influence in our nation, it's not because of Satan. Listen, Satan is defeated. He was defeated at the cross. Greater is he that is in us as a believer than he that is in the world. You want to know why there's such a great Christian decline influence in the world? I think it's because we fight each other and we tear each other apart and we can't get on the same page for the mission and the unity of what we're called to do. We can't be the light if we're knocking each other's bulbs out with rocks and blowing each other's candles out. Look in the mirror. We are a big part of what the issue here. You know, it's like we're, we're kids in the back seat on a road trip, right? It's like we're nagging kids. It's like we're a bunch of kids just nagging dads up front, the fathers up front. And we're just in the back seat slapping each other. So-and-so touched me and so-and-so touched me. We're nagging, we're griping, we're complaining. And dad... Our father's in the front seat saying, don't make me turn around. I will turn this car around. Anybody ever had a parent that was like the master at the smack, right? Just all they had to do was put their hand on the, on the chair and you knew. Right? Anybody? My mother was a, a backseat smacker, all right? Maybe you didn't grow up in that environment. <sighs> Never. Well, yeah, my mom was a backseat smacker. So she just had to put her hand up there. And psh, we didn't even know what hit us. Like, we're like, what was that? It's like something flew in the window. We're like, psh, psh, right? And, and there was this constant nagging that my brother and I would always have in the back seat. And sometimes we would turn around. We would just go right home. I'll tell you what, our unity played a big part in our destination. And we see this in the picture of the Gospels. And God is saying, kids, settle down. We're heading someplace. All right? This is what he says, verse 11. Paul says, my brothers and sisters, uh, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Man, word's getting out from one of the house churches. He says, what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. We're like, man, you know who I follow? I follow the apostle, man, our founding pastor. That's who I listen to. And then others say, well, I follow Apollos. He's the guy who followed Paul. And he was known for being big on apologetics, very deep. And we're like, nah, Paul is shallow, but Apollos is deep. I follow Apollos because, man, he gets, there's real depth to what Apollos says. And then others say, well, uh, I follow Cephas, which is Peter. I'm like, no, 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 I follow one of the true, the first, the true disciple, Peter, man, he was always Jesus' favorite. He walked with Jesus, not like Apollos and Paul, man. And, he, and when he preaches, thousands get saved at once, man. I follow Peter. And then you have the hyper-spiritual people who say, well, I follow Jesus. These are the people, I don't need Paulos, I don't need Paul, I don't need church, I don't need people, I just need Jesus. And, and what they're doing is they're, they're saying, I don't need other people, I just need just me and Jesus and a cup of coffee on the back porch. That's all I need, making it about their own spiritualness. And you see, we all have our teams, that's what they're saying. We all have the person that we identify with and follow. Now, here's the first thing I want you to write down in this, in this area of, of a, a church that is divided, is that we divide over some pretty dumb stuff. We divide over dumb stuff. 
stupid things that they divided over. I'm going to give you a list of some of the things that's going to come up in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that they fought over. They fought over favorite leaders and teachers. That's what we just saw. They fought over the styles of the teacher, the, the preference, the depth, the, the, the way that they communicated. They fought over food preferences. They fought over where food can be bought. They fought over uh, food that was in the market or that was, that was uh, uh, offered to an idol. And they, they fought over food. They fought over the Sabbath and when it started. They fought over whether they should go to church on Saturday or if they should go to church on Sunday or if it started when sundown or sun up. And they fought over that. They fought over what it takes to be a real Christian. They began to fight over rules and what each people should do. And for them it was this issue of circumcision and this are a bunch of Greeks who didn't grow up Jewish and like, all right, you really want to be a Christian? Come on over. I got some scissors. Snip, snip. Welcome to the kingdom. I'm like, what? No way. And they're like, man, they fought over that. They fought over all kinds of stuff. And we were like, man, they were so immature. We do the same thing. We have our own teams. We go, well, I'm a Calvinist. Well, I'm a Wesleyan. I'm an Armenian. I'm a Pentecostal. I'm a Charismatic. I'm a Baptist. I am dispensationalist. I'm rapture ready, yo. No, it's second coming only. I drink. What? You drink? I don't. That's bad. No rated R movies. What? You're legalistic. Man, some of the best ones are rated R. Man, do you dress up or dress down for church? It's Saturday service. No way. It's Sunday only. No, it's Saturday because that's the true Sabbath. And then some are like, man, every time I have a Diet Coke in my hand, I got somebody yelling at me going, how dare you drink that? And you're a pastor. I'm like, yeah, good, 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 good. You know, I like, I like me my Diet Coke. All right. They're like, people actually look down on me because of that. Man, and, you, and then people are like, you let them read Harry Potter? What? That's in the occult. What, you had an Easter bunny in your church? You did Easter eggs? Man, that's, that's pagan. What, you have a Christmas tree? You dressed up for Halloween? What? And all of a sudden, man, well, that's okay because we're going to go out and we're going we're gonna to do some swing dancing. What, you can't dance? Christians can't dance? And then some say, well, I speak in tongues. Man, you can't speak in tongues. That's over. That's done. People say, well, music style matters. People like, no, the heart matters. And others like, man, I prefer deep preaching. And then others like, no, I prefer deep worship. See, we all have our tribes, and it's still happening. And in fact, it's probably even worse today than it was 2,000 years ago. We haven't changed. Sadly, some of you probably lived through a church split. It's painful, it's divisive, and you've seen the exodus of members over issues that are stupid. You know, I had a friend of mine, uh, some of you guys know what I'm referring to, just a couple of weeks ago, his whole church imploded. And in one week, pastors were fired. And they lost, in one week, they lost their pastor, their worship pastor, their youth pastor, their children's pastor, and their young adults and, and their um, adult ministry pastor in a week and a half. All of that. Boom. They had to cancel services a week, a week ago because there was nobody to do it. But yet they're moving forward. How do you survive that kind of division? It happens today. Second, I want you to write this down when it comes to division and unity, is that if you are saved by grace, live and give grace. This goes back to the seed. If the seed is in you, then you will produce the fruit of that seed. If you are saved by the grace of God, truly Know that grace, you will learn and develop to live by grace and to walk in grace. Paul says, if you're truly in Christ, then you are saved by it. Now you are to give it. I think we suffer from what I like to call grace amnesia. 
Grace amnesia is when we forget that we are given daily grace and that we forget daily of our grace. Funny thing about grace and mercy, we get it just like they got it, but like them, we start to think somehow that we've earned it over time or that we deserve it somehow. Listen, you don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Don't ever forget it. It dishonored God then and it dishonors God now. We must never forget it all begins, sustains, and ends with that grace, with Jesus. Listen, I want you to think about anything that's good in your life, anything at all, anything you like, your car, good music, you know, fishing, your family, uh, you know, you know your, your wardrobe, whatever. I want you to think of anything that is good right now. Think of anything that is good. Think, you got it? Spiritual or physical, anything that's good, that's grace. You don't deserve that. You don't deserve it. Even God's grace to a limited level is extended to the lost. Because anything good that they receive is a result of that grace of God that he extends to them. Now, that's not a saving grace, but it is grace. Anything that you have that is good, because God has every right as the creator and the Lord of all to wipe us all out to withhold any blessings at all from our life. If you have anything, that's his grace. Now give it. 1 Corinthians 13, uh, chapter 1, verse 13 says, Is Christ divided, he says? That means, does Jesus only love some people? Stop tribing yourself off. He says, uh, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? He said, man, I never carried your sins. Why are you putting me on a pedestal? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He said, man, this is not my church. You're not baptized into my church, into my family, into my community. Good pastors point to Jesus, not themselves. And Paul says, man, I, I didn't save you. Man, you weren't baptized in Paul's name. He says, I thank God that I didn't baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Now, he goes on to say, so no one can say that, that, uh, that they were baptized in my name. And then I like verse 16 because this shows the reality of this letter. He goes, oh, wait a minute. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. I mean, this is so personal. Man, he's like writing, man, I didn't baptize, but, oh, hold on a second. I can't, you know, it's ink, so just add on. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Also Stephanas. Listen, he says, it doesn't matter who baptized you, he says. What matters is that it was a reflection of your love and submission to Jesus. And then he says in verse 17, a, re a weird verse, he says, for Christ didn't send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. Now, this is not diminishing baptism and its role. He's not saying that you shouldn't be baptized. That's in the Great Commission. But what he's saying here is don't confuse the mission with the symbols. Don't confuse the symbol of your salvation with the Savior of the gospel message. All right? So here's the third thing. Write this down. The way that a church maintains unity is this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is continually preached. How do we, as a church and as churches in the body of Christ, how do we get along when we have so many different perspectives, views, and how do we, how do we maintain, even in this church, with our different political views and backgrounds and, and upbringings, how do we maintain unity? Easy. The gospel is center to everything that we do. 
It has got to be continually preached and the purpose as to why we gather together. The un, the, this is the number one essential to unity. Christ and the cross. In fact, Jesus said in John 12, he says, If I be lifted up on the cross, I will draw all men unto me. He says, this is about lifting me up, Jesus said. It's not about lifting up your plans, your agenda, your opinions. He goes on to say, Paul, in verse 17, he says, But to preach the gospel, not I did this, not with wisdom and eloquence, not with flash and hipster cool persuasion, <laughs> I like that, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. See, when our faith becomes about a style or a person or a denomination or a tribe or a group or a book or lights and smoke and cool people and clothes, the cross loses its power because it becomes about persuasion and influence and not the Holy Spirit. So you can have numbers without power. You can, have, you can have influence without the Spirit. Paul says, here's the point. Don't make it about me. Don't make it about Peter. Don't make it about Apollos. Don't make it about anyone but Jesus. Don't lose sight of the cross. And then he says this. He says, so what does real unity look like? Well, he, uh, let's go back to that one verse that he started off with in verse 10. What does unity look like? Unity, first of all. Let me tell you what it's not. Unity is not uh, uniformity. It's not agreeing on everything. It's not agreeing on a style or a method or uh, having the same convictions. Um, ever walk in a church and everyone is wearing the same clothes? You might be in a cult, right? That if there, unity is not uniformity. Unity is not that we are always going to agree on everything, all right? Uni unity is also not avoiding issues, some people are like, well, I don't want to address that because I don't want to break up the group. I don't, you know, it's a tough issue. It's not, it's not addressing tough things. It's not not having confrontation. It does not mean that for the sake of unity we ignore false and dangerous teaching or lifestyle choices. Paul addresses a lot of issues in 1 Corinthians. He addresses them. He does not ignore them, but only after he affirms them in unity. He says, we're family. Now let me talk to you like a family member, about some stuff, all right? So unity is not avoiding issue, and unity is not overlooking sin. It's not ignoring clear guidelines set out in the Bible. It's not a tolerance of all views or lifestyles. We see in 1 Corinthians there are instructions on how to deal with these issues in humility and conviction. So we're going to hit some of those in 1 Corinthians. So he says this in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, and I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. What does that mean? Well, first of all, unity means that you give Christians the same grace God gives you. All right, if you've ever changed your mind, raise your hand. If you've ever changed your mind, all right? Now, this is a big question. If you've ever realized you've been wrong, raise your hand. <laughs> I'm going to keep my eyes on. <laughs> you know, aren't you glad that somebody gave you grace? A husband, a wife, a friend, a family member. They, you knew you were wrong. 
Maybe any of you. Okay, here's a big question because I know this is uh, a lot of people just don't ever say this. How many of you ever said you're sorry? You know, there's a lot of people that don't, and that's too bad because they never get to experience grace. But that grace that you've been given by others, how much grace do you want God to give you in your walk? How much grace do you want God to give you when you fail and mess up, when you stumble, when you make mistakes, when you say, I'll never do it again, and then you do it again? How much grace do you want? When you say, I'm going to show up, but you don't show up, how much grace do you want? When you say, I'm all in, but then you're all out, how much grace do you want? That's the kind of grace that we want from God. That's the kind of grace we are to give to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This means that at the heart of unity is that we value relationships over over the need to being right. This is huge. It means our relationships are more important than our preferences. This also means that we understand that we have blind spots and that we give grace to other people's blind spots. This also means that we are motivated by mutual love and, and that our purpose is to restore and be together, not to divide and conquer. I want you to write this down. Unity also distinguishes between essential and the important. It distinguishes between the essential and the important. Unity defines what is essential as followers of Christ. There are lines to be drawn. Listen, there are cults in this world. There are false faiths. Not everyone is the way to Jesus. Unity defines the essentials in which we join arms with. We are united by core truths. We are united by the need, by the understanding of our need for salvation. We are united by the cross of Christ, the resurrection, the realization of eternity, of an eternal heaven and hell, God's redemption. We are united by faith in Christ alone. We are united by God's purpose and design for us as humans. Listen, we have essentials that we hold tightly as a body, as a church, and as individuals. But those essentials must be just the essentials. When we make the non-essentials essential, we do a great disservice to our unity. We have a saying in our church, unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, charity in all, or an attitude of love in all. As Christians, there are things that we can discuss and we can debate, but we do not need to divide over. The rest is messy grace. All right, listen, there's what's known as preferences and prejudice. It's okay to have a preference. A preference is saying that you like certain things over other things. Well, I like a certain kind of music. Maybe you do too, and it's different. Maybe we like different types of music. That's preference. Or maybe it's style, clothes, dress, you know, a preaching preference. You know, media, you know, we have preferences, but a prejudice arrogantly says that yours is better than the others. And it's okay to have preference, but not prejudice. It's not about style. It's about our Savior. And we must have grace in that area. It defines the essential. So here's a question. Like, what do you do when something is important but not essential? How do you treat it? Well, dialogue about it, but don't devour each other. Grace is messy. I like to describe it like this. It's like a multi-lane highway. Different lanes going in the same direction. And you can progress at your own pace. Pick a lane. I'll meet you there. 
All right, that is unity. Don't say, man, you all suck in the slow lane. You know, I'm better. You know, just humility. We're all heading in the same direction. Pick your lane. I'll see you there. So there are things that we must be willing to die for, and there are things we must be willing to discuss. This means that we are unified in our essential mission and purpose to be Jesus. We are of this same mind. That is why the gospel must be center to everything that we do. That's what keeps us unified. So let's wrap it up with this. Unity honors diversity in spiritual gifts, calling, and taste. We're going to talk a lot about this in the weeks to come in 1 Corinthians. God uniquely gifts us with different traits and abilities to shape the kingdom of God, to reach the world so much that he loved, that he loves so much. And we need to give grace in that. We're going to talk about that later. Here's the benchmark for what unity is. It is Faithful to Scripture, you ask yourself, is this faithful to Scripture and is, it faith, uh, and is it fruitful for people? That is the benchmark for unity. All right, here's the last thing. When we choose to be in unity, it invites Dad's presence. It invites Dad's presence. 25% of Corinthians is based upon this issue of unity. And you want to know why? Because as we will see, the presence of God is in large part driven by our unity with each other. I want you to think back of those kids in the back seat of the car. Slapping and pinching and poking and griping and screaming while dad is at the wheel. Listen, settle down on the back seat. We don't get to pick our family. God is taking us on the ride of our life. Dad has got it, so enjoy the ride. Here's what I love. I want to end with this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. He starts off with this. He says, man, you are a bunch of immature, messed up believers. But I got good news for you. Verse 8. He, God, listen to this, will keep you firm to the end. So that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means at his return. God is faithful. Who has called you into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe your life is messy. Maybe your faith is messy. Maybe your self-control is messy. Listen, God has not given up on you. God can keep you firm to the end. God is not done with you. And just like Corinth, you're a mess. But God gives grace in that mess. So what I love is like when we might look at our sin, but God looks at us and says, man, you guac. That's how I had to squeeze that in. <laughs> Guacamole. All right. <laughs> Avocados. Put it together. All right. So here's the deal. I want us to pray. I want to pray for you. He's not done with you. He's not finished with you. And this church was a mess. But I love how he started off saying, hey, guys, we're in this together. He's not done with you. He's still working on you. He'll take you to the end. He's faithful even when we struggle. And that's you too. That's messy grace. Let's pray. God, I thank you, Lord, that you don't give up on us. God, I thank you, Lord, that you're looking uh, at us right now. And, and, Lord, you're not angry at your kids, though you might want to slap us and turn the car around. Instead, what you do is you slide into the back seat with us and you cozy up with your kids. And God, I just pray that right now, Lord, 
You'd help us to find your grace in our life for those messes that we make in our life. If you're here right now and you're like, you know what, that's me today. I, I'm just messing up. I can't, I'm struggling with my walk with God. I just feel like I just can't do things right. I keep doing the same thing that I don't want to do. God loves you. He cares for you. And if you're not one of his kids, you can become one of his kids right now. He welcomes you into the, to the family, into this crazy road trip of life. And, and, and maybe you're a Christian who just needs to know God's not done with you. Just take a moment and just talk to Jesus and tell him, God, forgive me of my sin. God, forgive me of that sin that I just can't let go of. Give me the power through your grace to know I'm forgiven that I can have power to overcome it. God, thank you for your grace that was given on the cross. God, thank you for your mercy that gives me life. Forgive me of my sin. Teach me to walk with you, I pray, Jesus. Go ahead and tell them in your own words. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.